And I certainly got a lot of this feedback too, which is they say, I see you with your children and you're so loving and nurturing and you're hugging them. And you're giving them like they're squishy kids, right? And I'm giving them yeah. all kinds of love. They're like, well, we want you to show that to the company, but you've had to almost compartmentalize yourself to adapt as you go on, right? You have your home self and then you have your work self. And I do believe fundamentally to be successful, you have to merge the two. I think it's terribly important to insist on individual values. Learning culture podcast. Initiative, creation, all these things which we value. It's now possible to make organizations on a larger scale than was ever possible before. Learning culture podcast. Teach people to analyze the kind of things that are said to them. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Learning Culture Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Barry. This is a show about creating cultures of continuous learning inside companies. And joining me this week was Stephanie Duer. Stephanie is the co-founder and president of Homer, the only learning program proven to increase reading scores with just 15 minutes a day. I was really looking forward to talking to Stephanie, who is an expert in early learning. Not only is she an expert in learning and education and entrepreneur, but she also has a background in public service. Before starting Homer, she was the CEO of the New York City Department of Education's Fund for Public Schools and has worked in various nonprofit roles with the Carnegie Corporation, the Robin Hood Foundation, and as a senior advisor to the Bill and the Melinda Gates Foundation. She's also a wife and mom to three daughters. And the reason I paint this whole arc is that so much of the conversation we have and the impetus for starting Homer draws on Stephanie's experiences throughout this career, as well as through her upbringing. I took a lot away from this conversation. I am certain you will too. So please sit back and enjoy my conversation with Stephanie Dua. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Great. It's so nice to be here. It sounds like you've, you're a builder. You like building mm. things. You like putting things out into the world. Has that always been like going back to the to the growing up and on a farm and all that? Has that always sort of been in there? Like, did you connect with that earlier? I think so. You know, look, uh, we talk a lot about parenting at Homer and parenting's evolved, right? You know, we now have more of the helicopter, snowplow parents. I certainly grew up in the parenting style, which was like survive. Let us know when you come back and I hope you survive. So I think there's something about that childhood being out in the farm, building things. We were blowing up canals, you know, trying to find gophers. We're mixing chemicals that we shouldn't, we, you know, leave in the morning and maybe come back at dark. But there's something about that freedom and that risk-taking, I would say, you know, that thrill of risk-taking that I always loved. And I think that that led me to feeling that I had confidence that even though if you if I think about my strength is not necessarily in one domain, although I have a lot of experience in education, it's really, I would say that I can take something very ambiguous and not be afraid of trying to put some structure and approach it. Mm. Yeah. And that, that predisposes you to take on new challenges, which I think has been a sort of hallmark of your, of your career, right? Which we'll yeah. get to. So the, the other thing that stands out, um, so the space program, geophysics, yeah. It's, yeah, it's earth and space science. Earth, yeah. Yeah. How did you approach that? You were basically told, like, look, you're not going to, you're not going to cut it here. Like, how mm -hmm. did you 
and that motivated you. What like practically did you do? How did you approach it? Um, I did the same thing I did when I was starting my company is the moment I felt the headwinds on something, I just literally got into a zone and doubled down. So for me in that moment, I was living in kind of North Long Beach, Compton area. I was commuting to UCLA because I was working not full time, but about 20, 30 hours a week. And I just, I put everything aside and all I did was work and school. Now that's not a healthy balance. So we can talk about that. I think probably many entrepreneurs have similar stories of needing to just go into the zone and really internally focus. And so it was just a tremendous amount of focus. I, I worked lots of nights, you know, through the night, through the weekend. I mean, I was also unusual in that I was married. I got married along the way. So I got married, you know, midway through that journey. And unfortunately, the marriage didn't work out. But I always felt that I was a college student, but not a college student, right? I always felt that I was, you know, living a life of someone 10 years older. And maybe that was because I started working so young. I started working cleaning houses and helping my mom and my dad out, you know, here and there when I was very young. But I, I, I always felt... 10 years older than I think my actual age. Yeah. 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 Um, I, it's that I could definitely relate to that story. The, the idea of just like being intense focused sprints. Um, last thing on this was sort of resisting dwelling on this for too long, but the, um, how long did those sprints last? How long were you able to sustain that focus? Each sprint was able to, I was able to kind of keep it going for a couple of years. I'd say in addition, two to four years, but then by about four years, you know, it's, it takes a toll, right? It takes a toll on your health and, and, and your family and everything else. And so I was able to do it when I was at UCLA. I was able to do it when I was working at the startup, then going to Harvard, I was able to do it for a smaller sprint at McKinsey. And then really the most challenging one for me was sort of when I was commuting to UCLA and trying to to do well there. And then when I was starting my company, I had a small family. I had a family of three girls. You know, I was a mom and an entrepreneur. I was, I was not, you know, it was not easy raising funding, you know, when you you kind of show up and you're, you're a mom, you know, (laughs) it was sort of like, and and tell me like, how are you really going to dedicate yourself? Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Usually probably to a room full of men as well. 100%. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. Before we get to that part of the, of the journey, um, you left Harvard Kennedy at the end, at the end of '99, I think. Um, mm. You you had a few different stops. You mentioned McKinsey, um, but a lot of them started. I think the last two, especially, was at Robin Hood, which is not yeah. the Robin Hood investment app. No, uh, <laughs> but a, a, an organization that fights poverty in New York City. Um, and then after that, you became the CEO of the New York's Department of Education Fund for Public Schools. Correct. So, first question on that is: When did the education part of the interests come into it? Like, was that already there in the Robin Hood days or was that something that came later? It was certainly um, fueled during the Robin Hood days, but it was always kind of latent, I would say it was there. I had always felt that education was hard for me. I kind of left high school not feeling really confident as a student. And I just felt like navigating education, figuring out what I was passionate about, trying to figure out the right schools for that, all of that felt too hard, in my opinion. And my world was quite narrow in many ways. And so, you know, I I always would tell the story when I showed up at Harvard, my roommate, lovely woman, 
she said that she had worked in banking prior to Harvard. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. My mom worked in banking too. And and she said, oh, which bank? I said, Wells Fargo. And she said, oh, I worked at Goldman. I'm like, I don't think we have that in the Valley, you know, in the Central Valley. And and she said, no, I think there's an office in San Francisco. And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And then she said, yeah, I got really burned out. I was working too hard, too many late nights. I said, that's so interesting. My mom got off at five every night. <laughs> and we had this whole conversation for two hours. She's talking about investment banking. I'm talking about my mom, who was a teller at a bank. Yeah. And I had no concept that there was such a thing like investment banking. That I, like, I just... I was a world, even consulting, I didn't, you know, I didn't even understand what McKinsey was and their purpose and what that all meant. So, you know, I just felt like in some ways, it just felt too challenging, you know, for me. And I thought, I always thought that there was an opportunity, you know, my mom unfortunately died when she was young and she was, you know, my biggest fan. And so I always just felt like there was an opportunity to, um, make it a little easier. That's all my, it wasn't a grand mission. I just wanted to make it a little easier for parents and for kids to have access to great quality education. Mm-hmm. To dwell on, on the, the sort of the, you, this move into public works and, and, and that for mm-hmm. a little bit. And then how would you, so I think this is interesting. I'm listening by now reading power broker, Robert Caro's book on Robert Moses and sort of yeah. really fascinated by this concept. It's just, just amazing that the timing of this interview that, you know, notice that you're a builder, you've kind of been involved. I think while you were at the Department of Education, you built uh, and helped get funding for over 50 libraries, mm-hmm. right? building these yep. amazing physical structures throughout New York. What is it that makes a successful public servant? Hmm. It's a great question. I, when I was leaving the Kennedy School, the Kennedy School is de- dedicated to public service, right? And so I joined McKinsey, which was anathema at that time. I mean, you know, you were, and I was a Kennedy fellow too. So they really brought me in. They funded me. You know, I think the expectation from D9 and others was that I would go directly into public service, like my, many of my colleagues. And I shared with him as I was leaving, I said, look, I'm going to be a better public servant because I will have been in business and I'll be better in business because I'll have had the experience of what it means to work in a big institution for change. So my view of what makes a great public servant is obviously you have to have a dedication and and an orientation towards that mission. It is not easy work. It's very political. Sometimes it's very bureaucratic. So you you know, if you're an impatient person like me, that can be really challenging, but I found that my time at the Fund for Public Schools and working closely with Mike Bloomberg's administration and Joel Klein, it, they really drew in some of the best and brightest people I've ever worked with, ever, ever worked with. And part of that was the mission. You know, there was there was a sense of two things. One, a huge mission and the sense that you actually can make a difference and very few times in your life can you you have that big of an impact there are 1.1 million kids you know it was kind of up to us to figure out how to make um to put them for outcomes for children you know and so there was this tremendous like impact at an incredible level and you know very few opportunities give you that so i think mm-hmm. to answer your question directly you have to be oriented towards impact and not be afraid of making decisions. So I think in in public service where you get stuck is if you're so worried about making a decision because it's not going to be publicly palatable or whatever reason. I think what made us successful in the Bloomberg administration is we made a lot of decisions, almost like in a startup, knowing that they might not all be successful, but we wanted to err on the side of being decision biased rather than always waiting for complete consensus or alignment on whatever 
whatever we were doing. Thank God, because I can imagine without that action orientation, absolutely yeah. nothing. Oh, you're dead. Like you can't get anything done. Yeah. There are too many, right. there's too many headwinds on that. Yeah. So a couple of last questions on this, on this area of your journey was, what was like the most difficult thing to learn and to do on a sort of day in day out basis? I, and I think this is still something I'm learning. I was, what made me successful in building companies or, or building nonprofits or scaling early days means that you're not used to all the politics in a big organization, yeah. right? So you tend to move fast. I'm, I, I like, I like to move fast. I like to make decisions that can run into challenges around building alignment, building consensus, building, you know, all the internal politics. I think that's compounded. I have a small group of female CEOs and executives that we meet regularly. I think that gets compounded when you're a woman, because I think that, you know, there's something and it's not formally taught. I love that you're about informal learning, but it becomes this bias that you have to be strong and tough and not show empathy and just be, you know, a go-getter, right? You know, right. to survive, right? right? And and in particular in sort of predominantly male environments. And so you learn and you adapt to that behavior, but you start to cap out, right? Because that behavior is not rewarded as you get more and more senior. And but you haven't really learned how to be political, if I'm being really honest, in these organizations, because you just kind of worked with brute force, right, to yeah. kind of push yeah. things through. So that is an adaptive style that I, I certainly have to continue to work on. And I know many of the women that I meet with regularly also, um, you know, have had to really dig in to kind of figure out how to exercise, I'd say, that new muscle. Yeah. And it's it's almost like playing a role, which is potentially not who you are authentically. Correct. At home, right? Integrating work and life and that. But I mean, do you think that it does, you know, playing that political game and uh, it's almost like you have to at some point play it, some mm. of that. It comes at the expense of being true to yourself and being authentic and just potentially being better and having more fun at what you're doing mm-hmm. in the workplace. I, I 100% agree. And I love that you're asking this question. I've thought about this a lot for women, which is, I think that on the one hand you have, and I certainly got a lot of this feedback too, which is they say, I see you with your children and you're so loving and nurturing and you're hugging them and you're giving them like they're squishy kids, right? And I'm giving them yeah. all kinds of love. They're like, well, we want you to show that to the company, that side, but, you know, but you've had to almost compartmentalize yourself mm-hmm. to adapt as you go on, right? You have your home self, And then you have your work self. And I do believe fundamentally to be successful, you have to merge the two because I think operating these two selves is very challenging. It's very taxing. And, you know, we are better humans if that is kind of a united and you bring authentically your softer is the softer side, right? I try to do that a lot and encourage other women, you know, that it's, and, and obviously COVID has, you know, changed all of those dynamics, right? You're inside people's homes. You see their pets and their families yeah. and their bedrooms. You know what I mean? Like it's, right. it is a completely different, you're, you're into the self more than you've ever been. Right. Yeah. But I do believe that they need to come together for both men and women. I think that, I think my only, I can only speak from my personal experience that I think to some degree, as you become an executive, a female executive, that's a harder thing to because because it hasn't been rewarded, right? You know, and so different things yeah. were rewarded at different times. Do you find it's easier to do that, uh, founding your own company and, and running a company? Yes, 
Yeah, yeah, I do think it's easier to do it. I do. Yeah, because also I started this company with babies. I mean, if you yeah. think about it, I wasn't 25. I mean, my kids were part of my user testing. They would come to the office, you know, I would be at home making dinner, trying to work on, you know, the user experience, right? Or yeah. trying to call the engineers and figure out how we, you know, fix the bugs. And so my kids early on, and it'll be interesting, they're teenagers now, but they were able to see me as a mom and see me as an entrepreneur and see the good, the bad, and the ugly of all of that, right? The mm-hmm. really hard days and the really exciting, empowering days. So we'll see what that what that end result is. But I yeah, do yeah. think that I do think that they and they're girls. So I do think that they are very motivated to do something mm-hmm. in the world. Well, Stephanie, I, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. Really, really cool to hear the story and the lessons and the, the integration, like you said, between work and life. I think that's just been yeah. theme through so much. Exactly. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful. Hello, hello. I hope you enjoyed that episode. It's Andrew again with a quick message. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is to leave us ratings and reviews where you listened. If you're on YouTube, hit the like and subscribe buttons and feel free to leave a comment. We love hearing from our listeners and viewers. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please take the time to give us a rating and leave a review. Once again, we love hearing from our loyal listeners. If you're listening to this on Spotify, please hit the follow button to make sure that you don't miss new episodes as they come out. Thank you for listening.